Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of August 14, 2020. The Global Research News Hour airs on Winnipeg radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Metis and traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The program airs on other broadcasters across Canada and the U.S. and is podcast at globalresearch.ca. I'm host and producer Michael Welch. June 7th, 1974. Eddie Nalen, a man given a life sentence at the Milhaven Maximum Security Prison in Bath, Ontario, was placed in a segregation cell. Eddie was only requesting to be moved off the institution's working units to one of their non-working units. His ordeal included a maximum 30-day punitive action of solitary confinement from June 14th to July 14th. Eddie requested to be moved from segregation back into the general population on July 28th. The request was approved on the 29th, but information was not released to the prisoner. He was found to have bled to death from the injury he himself sustained to his elbow on August 10th. Sometime later, Robert Landers, a prisoner and activist outspoken for prison rights, had been thrown into solitary confinement and stayed there almost five months previous. When he started having a medical emergency linked to his heart, he tried to signal the nurses and the guards by crying out and through the cell panic buttons that had been disconnected. He was found dead on the morning of May 21, 1976. Eddie Nalen and later Robert Landers became the inspiration for the annual event known as Prisoner Justice Day. August 10th became the day that prisoners by the thousands would stage a one-day fast and refuse to work in memory of those two prisoners and of other inmates who would endure solitary confinement, prison abuse, and other forms of systemic violence. Community justice groups on the outside likewise did their all to raise awareness and solidarity with those in penitentiaries. In this week's Global Research News Hour special, we will focus on the Prison Justice Day in Canada, highlighting the voices of those both inside and outside the jails to profile the system of cruelty, which is, for the most part, ignored by our media, as well as some of the new challenges threatening this system today. One of those voices for change is Bob Gauthier. Retired from his past position with the Department of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, Dr. Gauthier has been a leading figure in championing the fight for prison justice and penal abolition. He was instrumental in fighting the death penalty in 1976, and in 1988, he pioneered the development of the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons, a series of peer-reviewed articles recording the experience of those who are or have served time. Professor Gauthier created the Abolitionism and the Criminal Justice System Mandatory Undergraduate Course, the first one of its kind in Canada. The leading prison abolitionist and community practitioner now has a scholarship in his name, aiming to carry on his vision of a world without prisons or punishment. 
Here is Bob Gauthier speaking to the podcast What Happened to Prison Justice Day. Here he starts with a recollection of his time behind bars. When I was 16, uh, I was sentenced to a year in jail, and uh, I did it in an adult provincial prison. When I was 17, almost 18, I got a two-year sentence and was sentenced to penitentiary. And that was a real eye-opener, being 17 years old, uh, going into a maximum security penitentiary, the SAS pen, is a, a bit of a daunting experience. <clears throat> this was the age of penal reform. They were still going back and forth about whether or not they were actually going to try anything that uh, seemed to be, quotation marks, rehabilitative, or if, whether or not it was just going to be the same old, same old. Uh, I had a, a quite a time in the two years I was there. There were a lot of prison disturbances during the time. I ended up spending the last six months in segregation in the hole. And back then it was bread and water, like a board on a, on a slab of cement uh, in a cell with a hole in the floor. Um, every 15 days at max, they had to take you out and give you three full meals for three days. So I went back and forth between the hall and there was a seg unit on the other side of the, the hall in PA, or SAS Penn. When I say PA, it's Saskatchewan Penitentiary I'm talking to. Um, so I was released from the hall. I was pretty angry and not in great shape either. Uh, six months in isolation. I was talking to myself and things like that. Anyway, as I say, I was pretty angry. And uh, I didn't get very much help when I got, got out. Um, I thought you, it was humiliating the, the John Howard Society and groups like this. I uh, really didn't provide anything. I needed work clothes, you know, boots. I had nothing. Like uh, They sent me to like a... a Salvation Army used clothing thing and stuff like that. I just found it really humiliating, and uh, I was not in great spirits uh, after my experience. So one thing led to another, and I went back into the group in the neighborhood. And about a year later, I got charged with uh, uh, bank robbery, and I got a 10-year sentence. Um, it was during that 10-year sentence, and all the violence that was going on, PA was a pretty violent place. Um, prisoner on prison violence, a lot of it, and uh, I decided, no, no, I'm not spending my life here. I had a friend who had got out, he'd just done 12 years, and he did most of it, he did eight on it, or nine, and he was out like a month, and he got arrested for bank robbery and got another 12 years, and I remember sitting to myself thinking, I'm not spending my life in here, and uh so what could I do about it? So I had to, to uh, finish a couple of courses for high school. Though I did had finished most of my grade 12. Um, and then just through a fluke, uh, there was a, a young guy that uh, came in to work as a classification officer one summer. And we had a, we had a, a Toastmasters International speaking group in PA that I was the educational chairman for. And we always had, because we had outside guests, we always had to have somebody from the administration uh, 
sit into the meetings, and generally it was somebody from the classification department, not a screw. And uh, so this young guy sat in, and I got to know him, and he knew I was interested in school, and he was from Kingston. When he got home, he I got a letter from him saying, did I know that you can take correspondence courses from Queen's University? And uh, so he sent me... We corresponded. He sent me all the application forms, and I applied, and I was accepted. And they let me take two courses, and I did quite well on those. And then the next year, they let me take three, and I passed all those. And the change, I guess, in my behavior uh, inside uh, seemed really noticeable to the authorities. And uh, that kind of coupled with... Uh, Trudeau had just really come into government. His idea for the just society and all his pronouncements there. If you look at parole statistics, you'll find there's a real increase in uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And it lasts for about two or three years where the parole rates really go up and then they go down again. And so I, I was lucky I got into that burst. Uh, taking courses from Queens, quite a few other guys in the, uh, in the joint also started to take courses. In the end, there was like five of us that uh, were at Queens. Bob Gaucher introduced some background of the development of institutional reform from the 1920s until the 1960s. There were major riots in the 1920s and 1930s in Canadian penitentiaries. And it uh, produced a bigger report in uh, 1921, I think, but then there was a, 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 a major disturbance at uh, Kingston Penitentiary in the mid-1930s. And Tim Buck and a number of others that were members of the Communist Party, the Communist Party had been outlawed, and members of it were incarcerated. And I think they were all doing five years for being uh, members of a legal organization. The idea of the, behind the legislation was that uh, they, they were... Uh, promoting violent overthrow and anybody promoting violence in politics. So this was an excuse anyway. But the thing was, was Tim Buck and this group were really tied into uh, trade unions in, in labor council in, in Toronto, uh, specifically. And so they had a lot of support and there were a lot of outside agitation around their arrest and around their incarceration. So Buck was involved. There's a, uh, I really recommend it. There's a, a Years in the Struggle, which is a biography of Tim Buck that is uh, uh, really useful. It gives you a lot of information on the, his experience, uh, uh, carceral experience, but also in the criminalization of politics in this country in the 1930s. Uh, so uh, Buck being in the, in, in, KP at the time of these disturbances, and the military took over. They were shooting into people's cells. There was a the, the rumor was they tried to assassinate Tim Buck. So this led to, well, as I said, because of the uh, support out of uh, uh, labor unions and the trade council in Toronto, uh, it led to a fair amount of publicity. And there was a fellow named Winthrop who uh, uh, wrote a memoir that was published around the same time. Uh, Winthrop had, was a doctor who was uh, doing abortions, which were illegal, and uh, a woman died. Uh, he was found guilty of, of being involved, and uh, 
He was sentenced to three years, I believe, in KP. And so when he was there, he was very well-educated, very articulate, uh, literate. Uh, he wrote a book when he got out, and uh, uh, it came out around the, the, the same time, and it had great impact. Uh, Globe and Mail like presented large excerpts from it, and so there was quite a bit of public agitation. And you got to remember the 1930s, the Great Depression. There was a lot more gra grassroots uh, agitation going on. There was a, a much a stronger sense of community uh, of the left of. Uh, against state repression, against authoritarianism. So this had quite an impact in terms of Canadian society. And finally, the government, uh, there had been Bennett, the uh, uh, Tories uh, uh, had been in control with Bennett, a prime minister at the beginning of the 30s, and he screwed up the, uh, uh, or they screwed up the economic situation for most people. Uh, to such an extent that they were thrown out the next election and a, a liberal government came in who were more open to uh, uh, these arguments from the Labour Council and the like. And uh, so uh, they uh, created the Archambault Report, or the Archambault Commission, uh, which was an investigation into the situation in Canadian penitentiaries. There were nine at the time uh, across the country. And uh, the Archambault Report became a blueprint for penal reform in Canada, where they argued that uh, they really referred to it as the New Deal, as Roosevelt had in the, in the U.S. for the broader economic situation. And I, I guess the mantra of it all was that uh, uh, prisoners are people. And so there was this argument that they had to liberalize uh, uh, penal regimes and uh, uh, penal control to some extent. We still have the silent system, the, the regular beatings, like the, the amount of the, the use of the paddle, the use of physical physical uh, uh, punishments, uh, the whole bread and water diets was really rampant across the system. So the Second World War really put off the changes, though they did start to to occur, there were a lot less guards during the war uh, because of the military call-up and the like, and uh, a lot less prisoners coming in. Uh, so they kind of loosened it up. The silent system in many places was falling apart. They'd already started to loosen things a little bit. So it was after the war, uh, they established a commission or a commissioner's office, a guy named Gibson, who was a retired uh, military officer, uh, was the first commissioner. And they started a program of, of penal reform. It went in fits and starts uh, from the late 40s uh, uh, through to the 1960s. And certainly there were, there were real improvements in terms of recreation possibilities, of out of just being out of your cell, of, uh, they tried to put in vocational training and, and uh, educational opportunities, but in a really half-hearted way. Uh, and in, in most institutions, it really was barely, uh, barely possible. So by 1960, this initiative started to peter out. And if you look at the penal press, what prisoners are calling for at the time, is for them to fulfill the promises they made, like to, to go full tilt with it. Are we doing this penal reform? Are we trying to do rehabilitation or not? And uh, uh, there was a, a 
within the, the, the staff of the penitentiaries themselves, there was a, a lot of uh, digging your heels in and not wanting to go along with it. One of the arguments that uh, uh, the commissioners made, and Archambault and the like, was the lack of, of, of trained personnel working within penitentiaries. I mean, who wanted to be a, a prison guard? The pay was shit, you'd be treated like dirt by the senior people, and screamed out by convicts, like, who wants to be a prison guard? It's one of the reasons that a lot of the penitentiaries were out-of-way places, and you see later, they actually build places, prisons in places like Drumheller and uh, Alberta and Springfield, Nova Scotia, to give an economic boost to areas. It's one of the places they could actually get people to work. So the 1960s were this middle ground where headquarters had wanted to keep going, prison staff were digging their heels in, and prisoners themselves were saying, hold on, you promised us this, none of it is happening. And so there started to be more disturbances, more, not a huge kinds of riotous situations that had occurred in the in the 50s but uh, also primarily in the uh, in the 30s but disturbances nonetheless so when I when I went into PA you had these two things going on I remember like that's major resistance like uh, uh, and pushing other people to you know stand up and, and uh, not take it uh, we had work stoppages we refused. I, I, they put me in the, uh, the masons, and uh, guys were destroying the machinery that made bricks. Like, I don't think that machine ever worked for more than two days running before somebody cut all the wires. And, and, and that was happening in all the shops. Um, so there were a lot of these just everyday resistance activities uh, going on. And, you know, when I think back on it, I think you have to understand it was the 1960s. And what was going on outside affected what went on inside. And in many ways, we were the same people. One of the things that, you know, when I look back, was really quite surprising, or not, I'm not sure, uh, was how young we all were. And a lot of the people raised in hell in South Penn, we were all like teenagers or, or early 20s. And so... I think we were all influenced by what went outside. So the, the 70s became a major era of, of disturbances and prisoner resistance. As I said, you've got to understand it as instigated by guards, that the, the guards' attitudes and their contestation of headquarters control and rehabilitation program, they were really against it, and they, they the union but the worst of the worst in terms of the guards, I like to use that formulation, uh, uh, in control of the union and in control of what went on in institutions. I used to have a guy that had been a guard at Millhaven come in and talk to my classes. He got squeezed out. They slashed his tires, things like this. He talked about being a guard at Millhaven and the, ex the excruciating nature of it if you were a guard. They ran the, the guy who was the, the warden. They ran his car off the road one night. So Millhaven exploded. And I think the really important thing in terms of resistance, what I'd like to talk about, and it, it worries me that it, it seems not to be there to the extent it once was, is Prison Justice Day. Guys in, the, in Millhaven's, Howie Brown uh, being a principal, started the uh, group called The Odyssey. And they were really about prisoners' rights. And they were a prisoners' rights group. And they brought in 
there were 15 members of the group. The group voted on who was members, who got to be members. They could bring in 15 outsiders. And so outsiders did come in. The Ottawa Civil Liberties Group, Liz Elliott and uh, Ray Sundstrom, uh, the principals, uh, they were major supporters. So Melhaven, uh, the Odyssey Group, a guy named Eddie Nalen, you probably know all this, Eddie Nalen uh, uh, committed suicide in the hole on August 10th, 1974. following year, uh, Bobby Landers, and I did time with both Bobby and Glenn Landers at PA. They were, like I said uh, before, they were a crew of us, really young. I counted like 77 guys from my neighborhood, prison, like in Edmonton, was where I'd been living at the time, of all my troubles. So in, in Millhaven, uh, Bobby Landers died of a heart attack in the hole. He'd been there in the special hunting unit. He'd been uh, uh, transferred in about three weeks before. Uh, I don't know from where. So they started on August the 10th, 1975. They had a day of fasting, a hunger strike, day of long work to memorialize the death of Eddie Nalen. And it really led to the creation of Prison Justice Day. And one of the things, if you, you, you're, you know, you're talking about prisoners' resistance, and I, I think this was really important. What we did from the 1960s to the 70s was we had access to outside visitors. And we always tried to bring in, uh, uh, you know, people from the universities, people from newspapers, people that had some kind of influence in the community. And so that's pretty much what Odyssey did. It reached out. And if you look at the penal press, if you look at a lot of prisoners' resistance, what they try to do, it's really central, is to talk to the outside public. You know, there's this, I think, false belief myself, illusion, uh, that if outside if people knew what was going on inside, they'd stop it. I'm not sure that's the case. But prisoners do have that optimism. You know, they can't believe what goes on around them. And, and uh, if they, they figure if, you know, that solid square John out there knew uh, uh, they'd be against it, that they would do something about it. So the Odyssey Group really reached out to the broader community. Uh, Prisoners' Rights Committee of Montreal, the uh, ODD, uh, the Quebec Human Rights League, uh, uh, all in 1976 started demonstrations and, and uh, support. I believe the ODD actually all didn't eat that day as well. They, they engaged in the same kind of activities. Marie Beemans, I think, was one of the, the people involved there. I don't remember everybody's names, but I knew them all. The Quebec Human Rights League provided support. Uh, in uh, Vancouver, uh, the wondrous Claire Colhane and her prisoners' rights group started to do demonstrations outside of Ocala. Claire's a major feminist, so she was really concerned about women's imprisonment in Ocala. And she started major actions around Prison Justice Day in Vancouver. In my lifetime, and I've been active since I was a boy, Claire is the social justice activist that I've ever met. I, her level of dedication, her involvement over the years, the things that she was involved in starting. You know, she tried to go to uh, Spain in the 1930s. She was like 17 years old, 18 years old. They told her, hey, girl, I... Uh, you're too much of a kid. So she helped or organize uh, uh, fundraising for a Norman Bethune tour that, that came through. Claire was from Montreal. Uh, so Claire, maybe more than anybody, has uh, influence on the spread of prison, of prison Justice Day, both inside and outside. 
The thing about Claire, St. Claire, as convicts called her, uh, was that she went to every federal penitentiary twice a year. And she had correspondence from people in all the joints. So she became a, a, a connecting point for everybody, all of us, those of us outside, people inside. Uh, so not only was she totally knowledgeable, but she was able to pull all these things together. And uh, I remember when she uh, chained herself to the doors of Parliament, you know, like in a demonstration out in the hill. She used to come through here, and, and I, I had her at the university all the time. And we, we worked pretty close together. But God, she'd leave, you know, and you'd feel like really inadequate, like you really hadn't done anything. What would you had been doing, you know? And like, so you got this great burst of energy from her all the time, you know, and this, come on, Bob, let's go. Like, uh, you know, I remember she got arrested uh, uh, because the post office claimed she was reading. She used to reuse envelopes, just like scrawl over and put in noon. They accused her of reusing stamps. And... Uh, so uh, a bunch of, we had a prisoner's liaison group at the, at the university, student group, and uh, we used to go down to Collins Bay, and the uh, lifers group and what have you down there. Uh, so they raised money for stamps. I think they raised like 400 and some dollars to buy her stamps so she wouldn't get, over, get arrested. But so Claire was really central in, in, in developing the national scope of prison justice day, both inside and outside. And then the screws, the, the, the guards, or the administration, they were helpful as well. So what they did was they took principal people from Odyssey, like Howie Brown, and they transferred them. So they sent Howie uh, to uh, uh, British Columbia Penitentiary. No, maybe they sent him east. They sent George Watson to British Columbia Penitentiary. Anyway, what they, they, they sent key people uh, uh, to other joints who could then, like... Uh, uh, share their knowledge of organization and what have you in these other venues. So Prison, prison Justice Day, I think, was the major initiative of, of prisoners' resistance in the 1970s. And it really did, it, it, it really did pull in outside people. And that was their, their, their desire, eh? What did they read you this? This is what the Odyssey Group is about. Prison Justice Day, August 10th, 1979. For the end of senseless deaths in prison and support of human rights for prisoners to attain the right to, to meaningful work with fair wages, the right to useful education and training, the right to proper medical attention, the right to freedom of speech and religion, the right to free and adequate legal services, the right to independent review of all prison decision-making and conditions, the right to vote, the right to form a union, the right to adequate work and fire safety standards, the right to open visits and correspondence, the right to natural justice and due process. Those are the demands that Odyssey Group in their magazine presented as their position, what their group was about, what Prison Justice Day was about. And so what you, you had, and I, I really saw it as coming out of the 60s, uh, the, the wider initiatives that had occurred in, in, in outside community in terms of, I guess, a left politics, certainly a, a, a wider critical politics. It wasn't just about prisons, but, but connected to the bigger picture itself and located prisons within the larger capitalist structures of control uh, and social uh, discipline.
That was criminologist Bob Gauthier speaking on the podcast, What Happened to Prison Justice Day? In a more recent conversation, Dr. Gauthier explained to me that the situation of abuse in our penal institutions has gotten worse. In a recent email, he wrote, quote, Since the Harper government, our penitentiaries and their inhabitants have increasingly become silenced a situation that has not significantly changed under the Liberals. While there are many contributing factors to this happening, a principal one is the curtailment of prisoners' ability to engage the outside. Despite the waning of support for PJD inside and outside, it remains one of the few significant moments when such a discourse takes place. In our second half hour, we'll have two recent organizers speaking about the Prison Justice Day events happening this week in their communities. Please stand by. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on other stations across Canada and the United States. Our show can also be downloaded or streamed from the website globalresearch.ca. I'm Michael Welch. The evening of Prisoner Justice Solidarity was held this year at Parc Vinay in Montreal. Joanne Wendy Barreto was a leading organizer as well as a woman with history of time within the jail system. We reached her the next day to discuss the Montreal event and to bring us up to date on the problems facing the imprisoned in more recent years. Could you tell me briefly uh, of the time period that you spent in prison and, and some of what you went through? Okay, um, my index offense was 2000, December 2007. So I spent three months in uh, Montreal um, Provincial, which was at the time was Tanguy. They call it La Maison Tanguy, the house Tanguy. God forbid they say jail, right? <laughs> A very, very old building. Um, lots of rats, ants, and not very good. But um, I managed to get bail. So for the next two years, approximately a year and a half, um, I was in a treatment center. Okay, so uh, so that was well. And then um, my trial happened in 2010 and I was convicted in 2010. So I started my sentence in May 2010. So my two years in, in uh, max, because when you're uh, sentenced to a life sentence, um, uh, it's an automatic two years of maximum security. Even if you're... Um, not, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? If, even if you're not criminalized uh, and, you know, you're not a danger to society, it's an automatic two years. Mm. So my, uh, my time during two years was a time of, pretty, of darkness. I mean, maximum security is not a fun place to be, especially, um, I guess, for not even especially for anybody, but um, I had never had any... Um, any time in jail, like it's like I was um I was a citizen, like like they call a citizen. So for me, it was very very hard. Um, I mean, I gained a hundred pound my first six months in. So um, heavily medicated, they're really into medicating you. Um, so not a lot of exercise. The food it was minimal, not very good. So we compensated with canteen food and everything. So after 2000 and 2012, after my two years, I ended up being on the grounds. Um, I kept myself busy. I went to school. I studied CJEP. 
um, three years of inmate committee. Um, I think I said that in a, in a CBC interview. Um, it's very weird to feel lonely, surrounded by people all the time, because you're never alone, but you're surrounded by people all the time, and, and, but you're very lonely, especially when you're serving a life sentence, because everybody ends up leaving before you do. So you, know, you start by making friends, and then you stop making friends, because your friends always leave, and, and it's very difficult. Um, and the Harper government didn't make it easy. They, you know, the room and board. 25% uh, of room and board in, uh, um, on already a minimal pay. Um, they took the one six away. Um, and pay increases to level A went down and most, most everybody went down to level B. It was practically impossible to get the level A. Um, the Harbor Commission in, uh, started um, the women's prison system the way it is now. Um, I started off well, but now it's going back. I mean, Juliette had six counts and went up to eight counts a day. I mean, that means women's prison where hardly any violence. I mean, Juliette is the pussycat prison of Canada, women's prison of Canada. Like very rarely things happen. It's not GBI. It's not Edmonton um, uh, where, I mean, it's a little bit rougher. And we have the more counts across the board. We have, we had eight counts. So we're being counted eight times. I mean, First Valley's got one official and two, you're just in the house. So it's, um, so, so yeah, so uh, that's my time in jail. I spent eight years, so six in Juliet, and then I spent my last two in uh, FBI, transferred there so I can actually get out of jail. Yeah, could you possibly just comment a, a little bit more on the, the unique, the unique situation uh, facing women in particular? Uh, it's a okay. We are a minority, right? And then CSC is uh, is an institution like government that goes with numbers, right? So um, just um, education or tr uh, work trades um, and things like that. Women have less because we don't have the numbers. So um, less investment because um, of less women. Um, example. I was doing CJEP. I was doing regular CJEP. So I had uh, Spanish and everything so I can get my credits when I leave and I go to university. Um, and that there's multiple men's prison that had the same, the same uh, uh, program. And then um, we dropped the three women and then they withdrew us. They actually stopped it. We finished our session. They completely stopped it because we didn't have the numbers for them to justify paying teachers to come and teach us. But the men's prison were fine because they actually do have the numbers. Like, it, like they have 10 people in their class instead of three, but we would have to have more women in jail so we can get more service. Um, when it comes to, to trade, to working trade, uh, we don't have as many as men. And when it does, when we do, a lot of them is in construction, but not every woman decides to go in, into construction. So you're, if that's not your orientation and you want to be able to get to, um, uh, have a good reinsertion when you leave jail, it's complicated because they're not giving you much other than a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated. So that's reality for women. The other reality for women is I would say, I mean, the government says lower numbers. I would definitely say 95% of women in jail have been physically, mentally, or um, emotionally abused. Okay. So, and there's not much in jail to help you um, get through that. The, the programming that CSC gives you is on your index offense. It's not nothing like 
there's, I mean, they almost, we have the survivor abuse and trauma program and they almost, they just canceled it. At one point they canceled it. And as an inmate committee president, I actually went to war, literally went to war with them and said, listen, I, you know, you can't cancel this program where, you know, 95% of these women need the program. What I think money should be going is at the, I, I believe in this, in, in, in breaking down the system and reconstructing with a better base, with a better foundation. The foundation is social services, drug rehabs, drug education, um, um, you know, trauma and abuse education. Um, the money has to go to before we get to jail. That's where the money goes, right? So, um, so that's my view on where the money should go. I don't think the money should go in jail. I think the money should go to prevent people from going to jail. Like, like not like the states do, but like the Netherlands do. Their social services are amazing. They have a lot less crime because they have a really good foundation, right? So that's why. That being said, we, we can't necessarily just break everything down and bring it up. So I, I truly believe that education is, is what brings people to um, a sense of reasoning and of understanding. So I think money should be put in education, okay? Um, here in Quebec, uh, we're blessed because um, there's a partnership between CSC and the uh, Ministry of Education. But uh, anywhere else across Canada, any other prison system doesn't have that. So they don't have post-secondary education paid for necessarily, okay? So that has to be done. A high school diploma these days doesn't get you very far. And if you have a criminal record, it gets you nowhere. So I think education. Um, uh, labor training, not just like construction, just concrete, you know, training. Uh, so you can get out and actually find a job in different, different aspects in different areas. That's where I think the money should be going. When COVID struck this country and there were major changes in that city. So I can only imagine what kind of changes would be happening in the prisons, could you comment in any way on on you know what has been happening? Well, we're not. The problem is with CSC is isolation, right? With the new reliability clearance and with COVID nineteen, nobody's going inside the jails. The only people inside the jails are prisoners and the guards, and nobody's talking, right? So we're getting bits and pieces of what's happening inside. So um, I wasn't in jail during the COVID nineteen, so I can't talk. Of personal experience. So what I am going to say next is about little bits and pieces I've heard here and there, right? Some men's prison are locked down 14 hours um, because they can't go out in bigger groups. So they're going out in smaller groups. So it takes longer. So they're spending more time within their cells, right? Um, uh, um, no visits, right? Um, the male is quarantined. So the male system has, has, uh, re has been reduced. Um, I recently heard, and I'm not sure, you would have to verify that, though. I recently heard that the um, um, security minister actually kind of suspended the, um, um, the room and board. But I heard that yesterday at the PG, at the Prisoner Justice Day uh, event, but I'm not sure if it's true. If that's the case, that's a good thing. Um, the other thing is prevent prevention is is basically not happening. You know, mask and sanitizing and distancing, um, not. And when you are uh, reporting um, symptoms, they're putting you in isolation, right? Which is not a really nice place to be. 
So people are not reporting it necessarily. So people are sick but not reporting their, uh, any symptoms because they want they don't want to be put in set because basically they're telling you they're putting you in medical isolation, but it's basically being segregated. And then you're out 20, 20 minutes a day. So most pe people don't want to do that. So this is what I'm happy. This is the, there's no money in jail. They're not the, the government put money on everybody else. There's no extra money being put on jails. Okay, the extra money that would maybe be putting in jails would be maybe for the guards for more protective gear, but the inmates are not getting that much. No. The uh, event uh, that happened on Prison Justice Day. Um, what uh, what was the turnout like, and and you know how, how big an impact, if any, did it uh, bear out? Well, to be honest, and this was our the first event in Montreal in a very long time. Okay, um, so I and we we planned it in ten days, <laughs> which is, and I thought I was pleasantly surprised at the turnout. There was a twenty-ish people, like twentieth people, about. So I thought it, the turnout for something like that was pretty good. Okay. Right. So, so hopefully next year we'll have more people. We'll have, we'll have time to plan it more. But I, I was I was like I said pleasantly surprised about the turnout. Impact well. It's hard to say. I mean, you, 20 people is 20 people. 20 people talk to two people. You, you know, you got a whole bunch of other people. So there's an impact already there. So, and then we did the live streaming and we did a whole bunch of other things. So, and I think also the conversation that we had, like after the speeches and everything was that prisoners just to stay within the walls and within prison has reduced. You know, you talk to inmates, they don't know what prison just thing is right you even talk to some some POs they don't know what prisoner justice day is so we our goal I think this year well I okay my goal this year would be to find a way to inform people within the walls that this is going to happen on the 10th of, Jan of August 2021 and this is how you can vigilate this is you can't wait and then you know, teach it, trying to find a way to teach it inside. Okay. Now, uh, just uh, finally, I, I'd like you to address the question of, of what kinds of changes do you see on the horizon? I mean, what's the best angle or the avenue for, uh, for, for progress to take place? What is the, the likely aspect uh, from, from where you sit now in terms of uh, achieving some degree of success for prisoners? Oh my God, now I'm gonna be so pessimistic, it's horrible. I don't think I'm gonna see changes in my lifetime, seriously. I mean, uh, when I was in BC, when we were fighting for segregation, and you know, the, 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 BC, the BC court said, oh yes, no, no, segregation, you have to change it, the court, and then the, you know, the CSC uh, uh, appealed it, and then we went to the BC Court of Appeal, and then they appealed that, and then went to the Supreme Court, and then it's like, and then they said, oh, okay, so they wasted a whole bunch of money for the end to saying like, oh, yes, we know it's torture, but we're going to fight it in courts anyways. And then we have this, I think it's BC, C61, I think it's called, isn't it? C61, the new bill. That's just a new name for segregation. <laughs> right? So, and my, my dream, okay, what I would like to see in my lifetime is, um, Consecutive sentencing abolished. Minimum sentencing abolished. Like let's start with what, what was put in like recently. 
that doesn't need to be. The Canadian justice system is based on a rehabilitation, that people in jail, that's why we don't have also the death penalty, because everybody can be rehabilitated. But if you're spending 100 years in jail, like you're not, you know, that's, that's, a term that's saying that a person is not rehabilitatable, right? And like, who wants to change with 100 years behind your back? It doesn't give any incentive to change. <laughs> or to do programming or to help yourself so i mean that i would like i mean the supreme court's already overturned some mandatory minimum sentencing but i would like that to go back i'd like to see pay increases for inmates right um i was i was part of one of the um um the people that uh, requested a pay increase and was turned down because you know the government doesn't consider us as workers they consider us as doing programs when we're helping to cook the food and helping them save money on employees and stuff so but they don't consider us as employees so um you know um that i would like to see during my life people that commit crimes and that go in jail are not monsters they're like, I'm, I'm not, I was, I, you know, secondary degree for murder and definitely not a monster. Um, people are not their crimes. People are people, crimes are crimes. People should, and, and, and I think people should start seeing the difference between the crime and the person. It's two different things. Um, when we talk about prison abolition, I do, I, I personally believe that, you know, some people maybe not jail but you know some people can't be released I, I i'm not i'm not an ostrich that putting my head in the sand and saying like everybody shout in community but maybe um in treatment or something else than just being uh, like in segregation right and just saying that there's no hope for this person just leave them there for the rest of his life so uh people are people crimes are crimes two different things okay i think it's very important and if you treat if you treat criminals like like monsters, that's what you're going to get when they get out. That was organizer Joanne Wendy Berito speaking on Prison Justice Day in Montreal. There was another activist speaking from the other side of the country. It was located at Claire Colhane Memorial Bench in Trout Lake Park in East Vancouver. Binakshi Mano is active with the Vancouver Prison Justice Day Memorial Rally. So on Monday, we organized the annual Prison Justice Day Memorial here on unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. Um, we had about 100 people come out to join the memorial in recognition of all those who have died in Canadian prisons, including federal prisons, provincial prisons, immigration detention centers, youth detention centers, municipal lockups. Um, and we also recognize the ongoing struggles that prisoners face today. So in Vancouver, the Prison Justice Day Committee, alongside several other prison justice groups, including Joint Effort, which is a feminist abolition group, um, Books to Prisoners, Stark Raven Media Collective. We all have organized um, this memorial on August 10th for many years. Um, some folks have moved on from the work, but the memorial itself continues. Um, we, we have also in this year um, responded to the crisis 
that has been created by the COVID-19 global health pandemic. So um, the Prison Justice Day Committee, alongside other organizers, including members of Anti-Police Power Surrey, organized 13 noise demonstrations between April to June of this year, where we went directly to federal and provincial prisons and immigration detention centers. And we actually made noise outside to show our solidarity with prisoners who were locked up. Um, and as listeners may be aware, during the global health crisis, the response of prisons was to basically establish conditions that amount to solitary confinement or segregation. So, you know, 23 and a half hour lockups. Um, as an effort to curb the spread of COVID. Um, but what we know is that segregation effectively amounts to torture. Um, it's a practice that has been found to be unconstitutional in the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, there are international laws around the use of solitary confinement, um, but conveniently under the guise of public health guidelines, prisons were able to implement these torturous frameworks one of our demands as well, as well as one of the demands of the kind of national abolition coalition was um, rapid mass decarceration as a response to COVID-19. Um, so to know that two people died because the federal government fundamentally mismanaged a health crisis um, is very poignant. So the deaths of those prisoners um, here in BC, as well as in other provinces, there's also um, a long running additional public health crisis created by a poison drug supply. Um, so people may know it as the fentanyl crisis or the opioid overdose crisis. It's really a crisis of bad racist drug laws. And so we know that many prisoners have also died um, potentially while inside of overdose, but we also know that people come out and are at a great risk of overdose because of this toxic drug supply. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, the, the appearance of, of COVID, and, and I'm interested in finding out what your understanding of, of the impact in COVID uh, in, in the jails uh, had. So what we heard, and foremost, it was from family members who were trying to support their loved ones from the community. Um, really um, uneven access to PPE, so uneven access to things like even soap or showers. Um, we heard of folks having really limited access to phones. So for people who are, you know, their loved ones are inside prisons, um, and maybe they're in a prison where a COVID outbreak has been declared, that inability to get in touch with your loved one is so devastating. It creates a further crisis. Um, we heard about uh, family members who do participate in advocacy being retaliated against by the correctional service. Um, so in particular, family groups who were advocating around the conditions at Mission Institution have been targeted by the Federal Prison Service for their advocacy, um, which is a, another tool of the prison, right, to silence dissent. Um, they can, you know, they can do lots of things to prisoners. They can put them in solitary confinement. They can make their lives hell. They can do arbitrary punishments. And then for loved ones, 
they're similarly subject to these totally discretionary forms of just fucking with someone's life. Can you uh, address the, the particular instances uh, with regard to uh, trans people, uh, black people, indigenous people, and the, you know, the, the manner in which they are dealt with that perhaps is uh, unique as opposed to the more conventional individuals? Sure. So we, we know, and you know, in today's context, we know better than ever that the prison is a racist, white supremacist, colonial tool. We can look at the staggering numbers of the incarceration of Indigenous people across Canada um, and see who is indeed targeted by this criminal justice system. Um, we know that, for example, Indigenous women are disproportionately classified at higher security ratings, um, meaning that they're doing harder time. Um, we know that Black people in prison, in particular, again, in federal prisons, are misrepresented as gang members, also leading to higher security classifications. Um, we know for queer and trans prisoners, they're often in conditions that amount to solitary confinement because they're forced into protective custody. Um, in you know, the prison's attempt to so-called, like to provide supposed protection. Um, but what all of these things really do is dehumanize, denigrate, and like demolish people's sense of self. Mm. So we know who is in prison. And so we know that in the case of COVID-19 or the drug poisoning crisis or any other health crisis that's happened in Canadian prisons, and there have been too many to name, we know who is being most impacted by these conditions. Well, I think that prison reform, um, we, we are living in the um, era of highly reformed liberal prisons, right? Prisons that espouse multicultural politics, um, that talk about um, LGBTQ plus communities. Um, it doesn't change the nature of the prison. And frankly, it can't change the nature. I think where we've seen ground gained is by abolitionists, um, abolitionists who are connecting widespread movements around defunding the police to um, prison abolition, because if we really want to wholly look at how policing is done, we must look at how prisons are functioning. So I think we see, we see movement when people take to the streets, take to grassroots action, um, when they use their own networks to call attention to the conditions inside. Um, I think there are groups who choose to um, pursue those reforms, um, who may be at negotiating tables with CSC, um, who may be at negotiating tables with provincial corrections, um, who may be trying to make better policy. But fundamentally, we need to get people out of jail. You know, Prison Justice Day is always a sad day. Um, it's a memorial. It has a somber tone. Um, we're, we're, you know, coming together to really take stock of the violence of prisons. Um, I think this year it was even heavier knowing, um, 
that we have that we who are supposedly free are now adapting to a new normal in the context of COVID. Um, but we've already seen what waves of the COVID-19 health crisis can do in prisons. And I think a lot of us are kind of um, anxiously waiting what's going to happen with the second wave. Um, we are in this moment where people are having very, very incredible conversations about the violence of police, about anti-Black racism in policing and prisons, um, about the advocacy that people who have been harmed by police can take on. And so I think that is really hopeful. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like I am just really struck by how horrible prisons are, how they are effectively designed to evade any type of accountability, um, how reform has been sold to academics, nonprofits, um, NGOs, government as the way to solve the problems, but really it just seems to waste people's time and exhaust the energy that they could put into direct support for prisoners. Um, there are things that I've seen that are hopeful and um, those include like mutual aid projects, um, including the ones that are benefiting prisoners in Ontario, as well as the Prairie provinces. I think it's incredible that folks just have figured out how to get hands, how to get money into the hands of prisoners, um, because that is one really tangible thing people can do. Um, and I think we, we also are in a moment where we can connect the prison industrial complex to our broader everyday society, including the harms of policing. Inakshi Mano was organizer with the Vancouver Prison Justice Day event. While another Prison Justice Day event has come and gone, there are a number of other ways for people in Canada to continue the struggle. In addition to the aforementioned Journal of Prisoners on Prisons, there are a number of radio shows across the country which highlight the voice of prisoners on the matters that particularly concern them and us. My name is Michael Welch. Thank you for joining this special Prison Justice Day broadcast on the Global Research News Hour. The show is heard every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations broadcasting throughout North America. We can also be found on the website globalresearch.ca. Our interview with Bob Gaucher can be found as a podcast on Apple for the Prison Radio Show. Music this week was Shifting Sands from the group Purple Planet. It can be found at the site purple-planet.com. I'm Michael Welch. Thank you for joining us. See you all again next week.